Again, verse 28, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. It seems like such a a routine note there, his location, geographically speaking, to the city of Jerusalem. But having kept in mind the context, having in mind the, the narrative of Luke's gospel, I hope that this note of his location has a deeper meaning to you than just where he happens to be. At long last, he has arrived. He has had his face set on the city of Jerusalem for many months now, even as he traversed back and forth across the country, working miracles, teaching the word of God. He has had his face set on Jerusalem. But you and I know that his arrival at the city of Jerusalem is not simply the culmination of a journey that was several months in progress. Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem at this hour according to the plan of God that had been forged in eternity, now brought to pass in the fullness of time. All of history has been leading up to this moment and all of history is going to turn on this. History divides here and people divide here. All of history divides here and all people divide here. There are two ways to go and there are only two ways to go. Either we go the narrow way Receiving Jesus Christ as our own King, the way that few find, this way leads to life. It leads to to the singing and the rejoicing of the people of God. Or we may go the broad way, which most take, the way that leads to destruction. If we go that way, there is no escaping the, the suffering of repercussions for forsaking for refusing God's Son. And so, in this moment, as we know that all of history divides here, so all people divide here, either refusing Christ or receiving Christ in faith. Jesus is going to say, if you would look down at verse 42 for a moment, just glance over it, He is going to say that Jerusalem did not know the things that make for peace. They didn't know. And he is also going to say that they didn't know the time of their visitation. That is, when God in Christ visited them in grace for salvation. They did not know. But why was the Bible written? Why was it given to us? And why was the Gospel of Luke given to us? That we have, you know, the reason we've been emphasizing ever since Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. It was given to us so that we would not be ignorant. So that we would know. In fact, that we would be certain of Jesus Christ. And that He is what makes for peace. So that we would be certain that Jesus Himself is our peace. Do you know what it is that makes you certain that it's Jesus and no one else? Do you know what it is? Can you... do? Do you have words for this? Can If somebody would ask you, how do you know? I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons, but I want to get to the heart of it. How do you know? How can you be absolutely certain? 
What is it that makes you certain? I'll give you one word, then I'll give you a few more. It's glory. Glory. It's in the truth that you have been raised to life and your heart has been awakened the eyes of your heart have been open, and when you look into the Word of God and you see the revelation of God's Word concerning His Son Jesus, you see glory. The glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ, and you don't find that glory, the majestic splendor of God, in anyone else. Of course, in creation, you see the glory of God reflecting. It's reflecting the beauty and the glory of its creator, Jesus. But as far as the fullness of the glory of God, all of the splendor, it's revealed in Christ. This is it. This is what makes your heart certain. This is how you know that the Bible is God's Word. And Jesus is the way to salvation. If this is of God, then you should see in the Word of God a glory that is only fitting of God, that can only be explained by God. This must be of God. This is not of man. This is not of earth. This is of heaven. And you know it because your eyes have seen it. The eyes of your heart have seen. Here is glory. Here is the glory of God. It's in Jesus Christ. That's what makes you certain. Above all, it's in Christ that you see glory. Glory that so captivates your heart and so compels you that you would take up a cross if that's what it takes to be with Him. And that's exactly, of course, what Jesus says we must do to be with Him. We must take up a cross. But by the glory that we see in Christ, we know that He is worth it, no matter what it costs. Let's read verses 29 to 31 again. So that's uh, as we always do. Man, and I, I'll... Same old, same old. You better believe it. It's what we're going to do. We come into the Word of God. You should expect and you should demand and you should hunger and thirst. You should long for hearing the glory of God proclaimed in Jesus Christ. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. It is Sunday morning when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem gloriously. At this time, Friday, he will once again be outside the city to be laid on a cross of wood. You know what the world would say about that? The world would say, that's unfortunate. What a disastrous, unforeseen turn of events. But Jesus is spelling things out to his disciples step by step, 
very specifically so that they would know that nothing that happens, not from the first day to the fifth day on which he will die, nothing is unforeseen. Jesus remains in complete control the entire way. Everywhere he goes, he goes, as he actually says in chapter 22, he goes as has been determined by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God is the way that Peter will put it in the early chapters of Acts. Jesus remains in complete control. And so he directs two of his disciples to go into the village and to find a colt there, not a colt that is a horse, but a colt that is a donkey on which he will sit. No one has sat on this thing before. Biblical lines... They can be traced way back beyond a thousand years. But for the sake of this, we'll say biblical lines that began 1,000 years earlier and have arced forward are now landing on and being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As the prophets have said, he has now arrived to accomplish salvation in Jerusalem. He is making here the entrance of a king. Why a donkey? I mean, if there is an animal that inspires less awe and wonder than a donkey, I'm not sure what it would be. But listen, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah had 500 years before said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Talk about a humble creature. I mean, there is nothing majestic about a donkey. Jesus is the king of all might. As we read earlier, the people are going to to praise him with a thunderous song over him working all of the, the works of God in might. He is the king of all might and also all meekness. And that's why he comes into the city receiving the thunderous praise of the people for his might, but riding in meekly. This is the glory of our God. Who is like Jesus Christ in all the earth? He is alone. He is without peer. There is none beside him. There is no other. Who transcends over all people by his might and yet serves everyone from beneath. Only our God, only our King. This is Jesus. The the two disciples go and they find everything just as Jesus says. We see that in verses 32 to 34. We've already read it. The Bible says that uh, in verse 33, As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. The word that is translated owners 
is kurioi, which literally means lords. It's lords said to them, small l lords, clearly, it's lords said to them, why are you untying the colt? Look at how the disciples respond. This gets lost in translation, unfortunately. Not that owners is a bad translation because that's what it means. But it says that the hoi curioi said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, has curios has need of it. The Lord said, and they said to the, the Lord's, the Lord has need of this animal. It says, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. We also know from Matthew, Mark, and John that they took branches and palm branches and they were waving those and they were spreading those down on the road as well. They're welcoming the king here. We might say that they're rolling out the red carpet for him. But this is no A-list celebrity here to be gawked at. This isn't some visiting dignitary here on Empire Business. These disciples know that this is the anointed one of God. This is the Messiah who has arrived on the scene to save his people. They know this. They might not understand how this salvation will be accomplished. In fact, I would say they don't have a clue how it's going to be accomplished. They might not know what the salvation entails, that it's not necessarily physically yet, but spiritually in Christ now, they may be fully and forever justified by His death on the cross and resurrection. So they don't know what this salvation looks like, but they know that it's coming. They don't have an idea of the darkness that lies ahead. But they believe, these disciples believe, that the light of the world has arrived in Jesus Christ. The Messiah has come. Verses, uh, let's keep going. As he was drawing near, it says in verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He's coming down the Mount of Olives and this is one of those times where you just wish you could go in a a time machine to get back and to be right there and to see all of this and to feel probably even the the shaking of the ground as the disciples, not only the twelve, but a host of his disciples who have followed, thunder the praises of Jesus Christ. There are many, many more in the city as well who have gathered from the nations to celebrate Passover. There are also the Pharisees. The, The city is full of people and they're all drawn to Christ, not spiritually per se, but they're, they're drawn to this, the scene as he comes down the Mount of Olives and how the disciples sing and what they sing. Their words here are loaded. And I'd like to take a little bit of time to explore these words. So if you would turn back to Psalm 118. What they are singing 
is the climax of this ancient song that was sung at the Feast of Passover, which again is about to be celebrated in four days' time. On Thursday of that week, Jesus will celebrate the Passover with his disciples. That night, you recall, he will be arrested. He will be tried in a sham trial if ever there was one. And on Friday, he will be crucified. So this this psalm was written for the procession of God's people to the temple in celebration of the deliverance of the Lord. This psalm, look at just look over the first few verses. I'm not going to read them, just scan over them quickly. This psalm speaks of God's people's dependence on and deliverance through and doxology for God's has said his steadfast love which endures forever. It's all in praise of his steadfast love. So this song you can see was especially appropriate to sing at Passover as the people were looking back on that day when they had been delivered from the suffering of bondage in Egypt. Now they are singing this song not because they are looking back on the deliverance from Egypt, not because they are looking back, but because they are looking at the salvation of God as Jesus comes into the city. The Lord's salvation Himself has arrived. Let's look at verses 29, uh, 19 to 29 of Psalm 118. This is what they sing as they proceed to the temple. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord, the pilgrims sang. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now listen to the following words. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us in Hebrew. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you, uh, can you just see how a little extra time, using those Crofts references that you may have down the, the middle part of your page is so useful, you meditate upon these words a little bit deeper. You go back and you see the source and you look at how the promises were made. I want you to have a feel for the arc of the Bible. I want you to have a feel for how God makes promises and how Jesus fulfills them. And if you don't have a feel for that arc and how everything terminates on Christ, I wish that you did. And... I just want to encourage you to do everything that you can to remedy that, to get that. It's going to take work, but the reward 
is impossible to overstate. Now, the few words that Luke obviously gives us in Luke 19 are a sample. I believe this with all my heart. I'm absolutely convinced of this, that this is a sample in Luke 19 of the whole that they actually, the disciples, have in mind. We know that they had more in mind even than what Luke recorded because other words are recorded in the other Gospels that they sang on this day, like Hosanna and so on. But this is a sample of the whole that they have in mind. It's not that they comprehend all of it. They don't know what all of it means. We're going to explain something in a moment that they would have had in mind that they couldn't understand. So their singing outpaces their knowledge. The singing of the disciples on this Sunday morning outpaces their knowledge. But they believe, even if they don't know how, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this song. Okay, think on these words. Verse 22. The stone that the builders has reject, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is our salvation. In fact, this is one of the Bible's, if I could put it this way, favorite ways of talking of our salvation. In fact, I don't know if there's another passage, uh, that would would be quoted from the old in the new more than more than this one. In fact, Jesus is going to quote these words in the very next chapter, chapter 20 of, of Luke. But this is our salvation. The builders, who are they? They're the religious leaders. They're the teachers. And they think that they are serving in God's house to, to build up God's people as God's house. So Jesus comes. And nearly unanimously, you could say, except for perhaps uh, Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea, nearly unanimously, the builders reject Jesus Christ. They do not think that he is fit to be any kind of stone in the house of God's people. But truth, he is the corner stone. He is the most important stone in the structure. Everything, so the, the stone at the corner is the first one that is laid, and everything in the entire structure must be made to fit to the stone, the cornerstone. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't go on the house. It must be made fit to the cornerstone. That is Jesus Christ. Everything in the purposes and plans of God fits to Jesus. All of God's people must fit to Jesus. He is the cornerstone. The whole house gets its form and gets its function from Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. In five days time, these builders, so-called, are going to do their worst to him. The most scandalous sin that was committed in the history of mankind. And they will be glad to be rid of him. They think that they will be rid of him. But look at what the psalm says next. The rejection of the stone by the builders. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There's one of the, I think, one of the most quoted Old Testament verses um, in use today. 
This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We say that, that truth about every day rightly. But when you say it, don't fail to recall the deeper meaning. Context, people. Context. What is the ultimate meaning of that truth? This is the day that the Lord has made. The day which the psalm is celebrating is the day of days. The day which the Lord made before the foundation of the world as the day of the salvation of the people of God. That's what they were singing about. The day of their salvation. It applies ultimately. Its first meaning is found in Jesus Christ and what He would accomplish on that Friday outside the city of Jerusalem. So it's no wonder that they sing Hosanna. It's a prayer and it's also a praise and it means save us now. So they sing verses 25 and beginning of 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the promise of this song. Jesus Christ is the theme of this song. And there's something that I want you to understand. I want you to feel this in your heart and be absolutely convinced. The whole Bible is God's story about His Son told in the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible is God's song about His Son, sung in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the theme of all of God's songs. Now, not all of the people there were rejoicing. Not all the people were singing. The builders... Builders were grumbling. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do you know why they rebuked him? Because they knew that the song that they were singing was messianic. They knew that the disciples of Jesus believed that Jesus was the Messiah of God, the anointed one come to save mankind. That's what the disciples believed. And to the religious teachers, the Pharisees and others, That was unthinkable, that He could be Him, that Jesus could be the Christ, the Lord over all. That was unthinkable to them. And so they actually, in a way, they rebuke, they're really, they're rebuking Jesus as they command Him to rebuke the disciples. Like they are saying, how can you let this go on? This is, this is blasphemous. Think about how often before this, Jesus has silenced those who would endorse Him. I mean, for some, it had been because the endorsement was coming from demons. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And he would say, be quiet, come out of him. But even after the disciples themselves confessed that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, as Peter confessed, Jesus told them to keep quiet about it. But now, now that it is time for him to complete the work of salvation, he is not telling anyone to keep quiet about who He is. He is the Messiah. He is the greater Son of David. He is, as Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had sung a few months before Jesus was born, Jesus is the sunrise who visits us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is the one that we are waiting for. Jesus is the one that the Israel of God is waiting for. And there is no other. There is salvation in no one else. And so I will say, not just assuming that everyone belongs to him, I will say, come. This is the word of God. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus answered the religious leaders, I tell you, verse 40, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All of creation is groaning for its redemption. Romans 8. All of creation. And one day, having been redeemed, all of creation, mankind joined with nature, will sing together in perfect harmony the praises of Christ the Redeemer. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I was thinking when we were singing earlier, I think we were singing, uh, when we were singing praise to the Lord the Almighty, at one part I ran out of breath. (laughs) And I was thinking, I can't wait for that day when we're not going to run out of breath to sing the praises of Jesus. Let's not be those who are mute when the praises of Jesus Christ are sung. How we sing should be a reflection of the worship that is in our hearts. Only a little bit better than being mute is mumbling. If someone was to watch you sing praises to Jesus Christ, what would they conclude about how you feel toward Christ? About your faith and your hope in Him? Would they come to believe that He is something to you? Or better, that He is everything to you? The way that we sing should be a reflection of our true heart's worship. Don't be one who refuses praise to Jesus. Let's look at the next verses. The joy of the celebration quickly fades from view in these next verses. Verse 41 to 44. These are some of the saddest verses that we could read. And they're really heart-wrenching. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, think of it, for many months now he's had his face on the city. 
And it says when he saw it, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is four days from his arrest and five days from his crucifixion, and yet he is weeping over the destruction of the city that is yet 35 or so years in the future. For one, and first, this is the heart of our king, and number two, this should be our heart towards sinners also. He does not weep for himself, but he weeps for those who will be lost. This is the heart of God for the sinner. Jesus says that the things that were made for peace are hidden from your eyes. You don't know. You don't know the time of your visitation. In truth, these things in the judgment of God were divinely hidden from their eyes. But that is not to say those poor, innocent people. That's not who they are. They have killed the prophets and they will be glad to kill the one they prophesied of. They have been guilty of killing the servants of the Lord that have come to them over the centuries. And they will be glad to think themselves rid of God's Son. And for this, for the hardness of their hearts and their unbelief, they will perish. In A.D. 70, these words will be fulfilled. Rome will march on Jerusalem and utterly destroy it. The world would look at the history and say there were a bunch of geopolitical factors at work there. Ultimately, it's because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, Lord, and Savior. God had visited them in grace for salvation. That's why Christ had come. But because they refused Him, He would visit them again in judgment. There are two ways to respond to Jesus. And there are only two ways. We can go the narrow way which few find, the way that leads to life, by receiving Jesus Christ as your own King. Your King. Refusing every other claims to the throne, including the claim that your flesh wants to make, and say, Jesus Christ is King. I have no other Savior. He is all. Turning from your sin and calling out to Him to save you. Or you can go the broad way that leads to destruction. You can receive Jesus Christ and have every reason to sing forever. Or you can reject Jesus Christ and there will be no escaping the repercussions of refusing God's Son. But look at the heart of the King. What do you want to do? What do you want to do again? Do you want to trust in Him? Do you want to renew your, your, your coming to Him? Don't you see the glory of the King? 
not only in the praises of His disciples, but even how He weeps over those who are lost. Don't you see the glory of the King? What other glory is there? What other hope is there? What what else do we have outside of Christ? Let's come to Him. Every single one of us, let's come to Jesus Christ. He gladly saves those who believe. He weeps over those who refuse Him.